0: You're listening to The Plate Up, a podcast for the food and beverage world from restaurants to bars, hotels, and travel. My name is Hesham Pires, and I'm the Corporate Executive Chef of Banyan Tree Hotels and Resorts, and I'm joined by my F&B counterpart, Sebastian Divaskaya, F&B Director at the One and Only Hotel in Mexico. And over the next hour, we are hoping to tackle some of the hottest topics in F&B, share some stories, go through our process, talk about the lessons we've learned, and how to untangle some of the complexities in this industry. Welcome back to The Plate Up, and we have another At The Pass episode, and today we're with Joshua Cameron from the Mahonicon Sky Bar and Restaurant in Bangkok. Welcome, Josh. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. And uh, we're missing Sebastian today. I'm hoping he might jump on later on, but uh, we're going to get started. Now, Josh um, is... Josh and I know each other from uh, the Mahonakan Sky Bar and Restaurant, I should probably add. Um, And the reason we have Josh in today is two episodes ago, we spoke a little bit about discrimination at work, um, the Black Lives Matter movement a little bit, and the situation that was going on with Bon Appetit. Now, at the time, Sebastian and I probably didn't give that whole topic too much justice, and um, I don't think we really knew exactly the workings, the ins and outs of what's been going on recently around the world. Um, And we probably gave a very abridged version. So that's why we have Josh with us today. Uh, Josh, why don't you give us a little background history about yourself, please?
1: Oh, right. Uh, I am an American chef. Uh, I started working in restaurants when I was 12, or I I decided I want to be a chef when I was 12. started working in restaurants when I was 13. And I've done everything from fine dining to casual to opening restaurants to consulting to, I was on tour for J Cole to, I mean, I've, I've, I've done a lot of it. And, uh, most recently I am now in Bangkok and the chef of the Mohanakan Bangkok sky bar, which is the restaurant on the top floor of the tallest building in Thailand, which is pretty cool. And, a, a pretty cool view from there. So that's yeah. correct.
0: That's great. What, what's, where are you from in the States?
1: Uh, from, uh, Well, basically raised in Delaware, which is the third smallest state, really tiny East coast, mid Atlantic. Yeah.
0: And how did cooking find you or how did you find cooking?
1: Um, Well, it's funny. I actually know the moment that it happened. So growing up, we were incredibly poor. Like uh, my dad was a dirty hippie. My mom was 19 when she had my oldest brother. Like it was, it was just one of those things. And so like for us, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but, and so food it was never scarce, but at the same yeah. time, it was never anything more than fuel. Like it, we never went out. We never, you know, it, it was just, you, you, put it in yourself to keep going like that type of thing. And, uh, I remember it was actually, I was at a friend's house and we were watching, you know, Maryland public television or whatever it was. And there was a cooking show and it was called dessert circus with Jacques Therese. And it was, you know, he was doing all these sculptures out of chocolate and he was doing like, the Eiffel Tower and all these things. And it was the first time I ever saw that food could be art, food could be whimsy, food could be beautiful. And it just completely opened my eyes. I, I had no idea that that existed. And I remember my, my mom was actually coming and picking me up and I ran out into the living room and I was like, I want to be a chef. And she was like, oh, okay, cool. You're 12, go run and play. You know, like that type of thing. But, but it was always one of those that they were really supportive. You know, I kept at it. I was like, you know, I want to be a chef. I want to be a chef. And they were like, that's fine. If you want to do it, get a job in a kitchen if you like it, keep going. If you don't, no big deal. Like you're young, whatever, you know, things change. And I had a friend who, and so I I didn't start out cooking. I started out dishwashing and legally you can't work until you're 14 in the States. But I lied about my age and my friend's godfather had a restaurant. And so he got me a job dishwashing. And the second I went, it was just like, fire and knives and loud music and these guys were like rock stars and i was hooked i was instantly hooked and i was like yes this is what i want to do and still that's what i want to do so you know 21 years Gosh,
0: later. am i correct in understanding your brother's also a chef yeah so it's funny enough um oh, he, he's, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah okay because so I'm, I'm sure yeah. Yeah, and I'm thinking. Hang on, I hope I got this story right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, it's really funny. The the (laughs) my first memory of meeting Chandler is we were opening my brother's restaurant, Amuse, brand new
0: restaurant. Um, You know. Sorry, let me just pause you there. Mm -hmm. Chandler, Chandler surname, Chandler Chandler Schultz. Schultz, Yeah. From about three episodes ago when we spoke to Chandler, so that's the Chandler we're speaking. Mm -hmm. So back to you, Josh. Yeah. So um,
1: yeah. So we. Our, you know, I, I moved from California and helped him open this restaurant. And my introduction to Chandler was uh, him on his hands and knees grouting the floor, like cleaning grout off the floor with a toothbrush, like <laughs> like that type of thing. And
0: all this story, by the way. <laughs>
1: yeah, no. The fun, the funniest thing though is that. Um, so my brother knew this guy named Travis, who well he knew his he knew Travis's dad, and his dad was a big fan of my brother's food. And he was like, can my son get a job with you? And Travis was friends with Chandler. And so Travis actually brought Chandler down from Mechanicsburg. And they were like, we're going to open this new place. And Travis was a complete wreck. Like he was horrible. He got fired within like, you know, like a month and a half, that type of thing. But the best thing he ever did was he brought Chandler. Okay, (laughs) okay. uh, yeah, so that's that's how that. So happened.
0: Your brother won the James Beard Award. No, he, he was he was nominated. Yeah, so so
1: okay. yeah, he was nominated three times. That's um, I mean, still that's still a achievement. That's, that's yeah, that's still huge. Yeah, yeah, it's still yeah. a really big thing. So we we opened up the restaurant, and about seven months later, uh, he got nominated for Rising Star Chef, and okay. then uh, two two years after the next years, he got uh, Best Mid Atlantic Chef nominations. So.
0: Yeah. And has he, has he ever been an influence in your cooking or is he someone you looked up to at any point? Well, no, the funniest thing is,
1: is we took completely different routes. So I, you know, as soon as I could, I graduated high school and then I went up to culinary school up in Hyde Park, New York. And then I did the whole route where I did like fine dining and this and that, and, you know, kind of jumped from restaurant to restaurant to keep learning stuff. Whereas he went to the restaurant school in Philadelphia and then, He went back down to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and he worked at this one restaurant where he was a line cook and he worked his way up to being the chef, to being, you know, best chef in Delaware, all this stuff at the same restaurant. He worked at the same restaurant for like nine years, which is incredible because I did the exact opposite. And, but even funnier is that throughout the entire time, our styles were very parallel. Like, like it was really weird. And, you know, I was working, you know, say at 11 Madison Park where, you know, it's amazing. You have these culinary, you know, culinary mercenaries that are incredible, but when you would want to talk about food, they didn't want to talk about food. Like their passion for some reason wasn't into food. And so like, I would end up, you know, after my shifts, like calling my brother and we would like shoot the shit about food and, you know, talking about all that. And so it was really one of those that we've always been kind of a resource for each other and we'd bounce ideas off of each other, but we never actually cooked together until we opened this restaurant. So it was, it was kind of the craziest thing. And then when we finally got together, we realized that our styles are very parallel, very like progressive, modernist American cuisine, you know, with, you know, kind of these flashes of molecular ca- techniques. I hate that term, molecular techniques, but yeah, like, yeah, like, like yeah. Put that like, you know, modernist kind of techniques, you know, that type of thing.
0: And I mean, I asked Chandler this, but I'm interested to get your opinion on this as well. When, from the moment that you started cooking in the States to, let's say, okay, so let's say your earlier days to where it is now, Mm -hmm. has that really been a slow progression? And I'm talking about the American palate compared to – or has that been like, you know, um, I'll give you an example. In Australia, when I was a junior cook, it was, you know, well, an apprentice cook – the palate wasn't that refined. Um, it was still very much simple fare, classic English fare, I guess people were really used to. Yes, there was a few restaurants that were kind of um, really pushing the envelope, but it wasn't that big. Come time that I finished my apprenticeship, became a commie, and I'll probably say five years later, it really blew up where not just fine dining, this you know casual dining uh, Australian fusion You know, Mm -hmm. um, and not fusion confusion, but more Mm -hmm. um, Australian fusion uh, really took off. Um, Is that the same in America, or you know, did Food Network have a lot to do with it? Was you know, because that's the big thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I was gonna say, like, when you compare, um, and and I'm guessing, you know, okay, places like New York, LA, Mm -hmm. where it's a bit more of a melting pot, I can understand, but we're talking about you know, Mechanicsburg. and yeah. We're talking about those little uh, states, um, Kentucky and Iowa. How did they – I mean, I went to Kentucky three, four years ago and I found a restaurant there. We were just invited. We were taken out for dinner. I could not believe the quality of food that was coming out of this restaurant. Okay, five years ago – I mean, four years ago, it, we're talking uh, – it's not in the past, but people's palates had – changed. And okay, their menu did have some real intricate it was a farm to plate or paddock to plate concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they did have fried chicken waffles on there as mm-hmm. well. So that you yeah. know they kind of catered for everyone. But did that palate like it was that that process, how did that happen, you know? So so I think that
1: there was uh, a lot of different events that happened. One food network was huge. Food network kind of put food on the map. That was the thing that you could accredit, you know, the whole Chef becoming a rock star phenomenon that whole thing where it, it really it it took the chefs out of the kitchen and into the spotlight and so that was the first step like that was the first thing and then I'd say that and, and sorry, who
0: who which chefs were they like who it was it the, the, I mean I'm the early
1: thinking. ones it was like like uh, Mario Batali and Emeril Lagasse Emeril was like the the hard hitter you know back in the day even though it's funny because okay. he's been relegated to best, basically nothing now but um, exactly yeah. But yeah you know the Bobby Flay's you know that that whole thing Um even early Iron Chef that they showed the Japanese episodes, you know, dubbed in, exactly. dubbed in English. And that was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. There's a cooking competition. Like this is incredible. Whereas like now they're down a dozen, but that was the first, you know, that was, that was the thing. And it was the most amazing thing we'd ever seen. But I'd say the, like the proliferation of fine dining or like more upscale dining throughout the States, even in small towns and stuff like that, um, probably about, 10 10 years ago, 8 years ago, if you're talking about like heavy hitters dispersing throughout America, it got to this point where New York and Brooklyn are so expensive. San Francisco is so expensive that all these amazing chefs were like, I don't need to stay in these places anymore. I can go in my, you know, where I'm from in, you know, Minnesota. I can go to Kentucky, I can go wherever and I can bring this amazing food to these places because now there's an audience for it. We've, we've come to a point where there is an actual audience that is willing to spend the money. They have the knowledge about the products, you know, that type of thing where it, it they actually, it became a point where there was also demand and no supply, you know, so it could spread throughout the States.
0: And I'm guessing the States being lucky in the way that you find those artisans, artisanal producers, mm-hmm. farmers where produce can be found that can't be found everywhere. So um, I guess that's one of the lucks as well. You know, you, you've got that luxury to fall back on as well.
1: Yeah. Even, even in the small state of Delaware, which is like, it's still very meat and potatoes, you know, it's, it's not very refined at all. Even, you know, in Rehoboth beach, which is one of the more progressive places in the state, you still have tons of chain restaurants and, you know, that type of thing. But, you know, it was still one of those things where people would still come out to, and they're, they're starting to come out to nicer dinners and it's, it's it was a thing where it was just the special occasion restaurant, the nice restaurants, and now it's starting to be more of a. It's a Tuesday. We just want a nice glass of wine and you know some, you know, nice canapes or whatever it is, you know, and and let's yeah. let's go to this place and eat. So it's not only special occasions anymore. Now it's it's actually yeah. becoming a thing. Yeah.
0: Now food is something that brings people together, but right now around the world, uh, a lot of people. Well, people have been coming together for a different cause and i know it's a cause that you're quite passionate about and you know a lot about um what's currently going on back home for you guys um i mean <laughs> madness absolute madness yeah i mean yeah, yeah, i mean, yeah. I mean well, let's it, let's not worry about the covid part let's i yeah. mean not that we worry about it i know we know that what about let's let's yeah let's let's talk about the other serious point of um
1: yeah, I mean, I mean, it's we're we're it's the the Black Lives Matter movement that's happening, but it's it's very divided politically right now. And but yeah, I'd, I'd say the the main talking point of why it's divided is you know Black Lives Matter, and then Trump further dividing things with the Black Lives Matter movement.
0: But, yep, yeah. yep, yep, yep. I guess that's yeah, that's that's not helping the cause at all. Yeah. Um, where where does this? I mean, okay, we know the joy. The George Floyd uh, incident is probably the trigger to what's happened, mm-hmm. but let's go back to w- where this has been coming from. W- you know, what's the history and what's mm-hmm. what's been going on all this time, and what is the, that that uh, people don't understand? You know, and and let's talk and um, you know, and uh, what I'd like you to do is educate those of us who are not Americans mm-hmm. and don't exactly understand. Well, they understand the philosophy, mm-hmm. but without having lived in the country, without yeah. having seen it yourself, and maybe and let, let let me just explain. Josh is a white male, yeah. So, yeah, uh, I, I, I
1: would like to also state that that this is I, I am probably the least qualified, furthest from you know from yeah. talking about this in terms of personal experience. But I I do feel very passionate about it, and um, yeah. So this is I can only speak from my my limited point of view. And the research that I've done and, you know, but so, so basically you have to take it back to the beginning, like, you know, black people and people of color have not had a fair shake in America ever since they were not Americans, since they were stolen in the 1500s from Africa. So, you know, 12 million Africans were ripped from their villages, stolen from their lands and brought over to help amass white wealth, you know, for 320 years. That type of thing. So you know, the Thirteenth Amendment was ratified in 1865, and then it's really one of those things that even after 1865, um, they were still kind of importing slaves into America because they didn't actually tell. That's the whole Juneteenth thing. So Juneteenth is they read off in Texas. It was it was the last. Slaves that were freed because they didn't actually read the Thirteenth Amendment to the slaves until two
0: years after it was ratified. So sorry. Yeah. So can you say? So I did not even know that yes. actually. So okay. okay. So I, for some reason, thought Juneteenth. Uh, see, that just shows you my this and how much I know about the this. Topic. Is this is whatever, I, this isn't I, this, I this is
1: even it. Americans. A lot of people don't yeah, know yeah, this I, stuff.
0: I, I mean, I I mean, I know you can't see my mouth because I've got this mic, but I actually had my mouth open just that. I always thought it was something to do with the Tulsa issue, or uh, not issue, Tulsa incident back uh, when they had that little, not little, that um, uh, yeah, the massacre basically, yeah, the, attack, the massacre, the yeah. attack. So sorry, say tell us again what is Juneteenth yeah. again? So so
1: Juneteenth is it's it's two years after. After the Thirteenth Amendment was ratified, so the Thirteenth Amendment was ratified in December of eighteen sixty-five. That states that you know slavery is abolished, no more slavery. But then Juneteenth is there were still plenty of places all around the South and in Texas that were still they never told the slaves that this happened, and slaves couldn't read, so they just kept working them. They just kept them on their plantations and and you know making them work. And then Juneteenth was the last basically plantation in Texas where somebody finally read the 13th amendment to the slaves. And they were like, wait, why are we still doing this? And so that was, you know, the basically the end of actual slavery.
0: So this is after the civil war, after
1: the civil war. Yes. Yeah. Okay. okay, Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, if you want to, you know, keep going with the history, it's like, okay, now slavery is over. So what do they do? Are people free? No, because what they did is they snuck in this little loophole into the 13th Amendment that says slavery is illegal unless convicted of a crime. So what do they do? They hire armies of white men to convict all of these freed slaves over... I mean, they created so many different laws. There was um, vagrancy laws, basically, uh, for being unemployed. There were... uh, uh, You can get arrested for mischief. You could get arrested for um was it threatening gestures or or um yeah like gestures but these these laws only applied to black males and so all of these people that were just free are now arrested and then they are brought back to plantations for basically legal slavery again and now not only are the you know, the plantation owners making money off of all of these freed slaves that are now criminals, but then also the state is making money off of them. So it's just encouraging states to arrest more black men to make more money off of them and put them back into slavery.
0: Wow. Okay. So yeah. there you
1: go. And then there you go. and then, you know, after that you have the whole Jim Crow era. So, you know, Jim Crow laws that happen. And that was, you know, in 1870. So this is five years after Um, you know, the 13th amendment was ratified. And then, so that was, you know, the legal segregation of everything, schools, churches, houses, you know, jobs, restrooms, hotels, even, you know, like morgues, cemeteries, all of it was segregated, that type of thing. So it it just, it, it just made it, you know, even harder for, you know, a black man to do anything to, you know, accrue any wealth to do anything. And then it finally ended in, um, uh, 1954. So 80, you know, 80 something years later. Uh, and so that was uh, Brown versus board of education, uh, finally made it so that, you know, schools were no longer segregated and it kind of ended. I don't want to say ended the Jim Crow era because, uh, after that, the South came out with this thing called the Southern manifesto, which was the Southern state saying we will do anything that we can to preserve the Jim Crow laws. So, still very deep seated race and this is you know this is the 1950s this is the 1950s and 60s okay, like, yeah. you know yeah. people want to say that this is oh it was so long ago it was so it's not yeah, yeah, yeah. you know there are people i mean two generations ago yeah the 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 girl who was the first you know african american student that went to school in a white school she's like 80 right now you know what i mean yeah. like Like, like it's crazy. Like she's still alive. Like this isn't that far in the past. And everybody thinks that it is. And, but I mean, so all this happens, but then throughout the entire thing, the the biggest thing that is kind of held down the black community is all the laws regarding housing, because housing is the way to accrue wealth back in the day. Like that, that is, it, it was directly correlated. So, so, you know, wealth, you know, equals education, education equals more wealth, but there were so many laws saying that you know you you could not buy land as a black person there 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 were these covenants that basically say that you could lose your realtors license a realtor could lose their realtor's license if they helped a black family get a house in a white neighborhood like like it was all the it was one of these things where they would bring basically everybody into public housing into urban areas where all the factories and stuff were and then they would shut down the factories and then move them into suburban areas where all the white families were. And then you couldn't move from the urban areas into the suburban areas. So you couldn't actually get a job in all these factories. So that led to the kind of decline in wealth of the black population. I mean, I mean, there are so many things that just kept happening that would just kind of, you know, tie the hands of the black community that they, they, there's just nothing they could do to forward themselves and, accrue wealth and accrue, you know, the same, the same rights. And even, you know, through the civil rights movement, it, and it, it kept happening. I mean, there was a civil rights movement in the thirties. There was a civil rights movement in, in you know the sixties. And every time, anytime that there is a strong black voice for the black community, they get assassinated or they get arrested or, you know, and it's, it's one of those that they've never had a fair shake. African-Americans have never had a fair shake in the history of America like and then and then you look at things like um so the GI bill the GI bill was for uh World War 2 vets that when they came back they were given you know there were all these housing opportunities where you can you know buy a house and you have either low or no interest uh you know federal mortgages and stuff like that in just New York and New Jersey 67,000 houses were set set aside for you know the GI bill for okay. for you know vets that could come back and get these houses, less than 100 of the 67,000 houses went to people of color, less than 100. So, so it's one of those, you know, it's, it's just, it's basically our government has been passing law after law after law that just, you know, hinders any, any sort of progress that, that, that doesn't make it possible for, you know, an African-American to get ahead at all. Like it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's a tough one. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I can now. I mean, I I guess that really gives a better picture of what's been going on because I think, um, as an there's also so much more, you know, the the abbreviation. But I think think you need to understand the history, Mm -hmm. and I think um, a lot of us are very quick to, or you know, kind of say, "Well, that's in the past," or you know, have have that kind of uh, mentality, and I think that's the important. I, I think if you don't know the history and where things stem from, mm-hmm. you can't really kind of make an opinion on something that's just happened in the last five years. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that kind of gives a lot of people an understanding of what's been going on in the States and in, in around the world mm-hmm. uh, and really gives you a picture of why – that this is, you know, that that it's boiled over to what it is now, and where the anger comes from, because, like, I I didn't even know some of the. I mean, of course, I mean, I, I, I'm busy, so, and and what worries me is, okay, me not knowing these things, it, it's kind of acceptable if you're not an American and you you're far away from it, but I think, it, and like you said, and I, and I 100% agree. I'm pretty certain Americans don't know this either. The
1: worst part is, is this is all from research that I've been doing recently. Like all these people talk about, Oh, I'm woke. No, nobody. Like I'm, I I feel like I've been like, you know, an ally for life, but it's one of those things that I'm just now starting to find all of this stuff out. Like it it really is one of those things that this is not taught in history class when, you know, any textbook has been completely whitewashed. So yeah, all the, yeah. like, you know, the, 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 Tulsa massacre, you know, um, all the, all these different things. I didn't know about any of this stuff until yeah. I started, you know, digging. And then as soon as you, you know, you see one thing, you're like, wait, and then this happened and then this happened. And it really is this rabbit hole of like, how have I been so oblivious for so long? And it's really yeah. easy to just like not do the homework and not care and be like, Hey, it didn't affect me. And I, I think that that's one of the biggest issues right now of everything that's happening in America is that there's this attitude of, if it's not directly affecting me, it doesn't exist. Yeah. And, and that's I, will, COVID, that's I can
0: hundred percent agree with that. Yeah.
1: yeah. Like that's, that's with everything. And so it really is one of those things that no, not a lot of people know this stuff because they don't choose to seek out this stuff or even when they're told it, they're like, Oh, okay. And, and, and it's yeah. not, you know, but, but it's like, this has been the reality for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, but, but it's just, do we choose to acknowledge it? Do we choose to actually care? And like, I think that's, I think, that's where the crossroad is.
0: I think the problem is people are too quick to ignore it as that happened in a time yeah. when things are different and go, well, that's in the past. Mm-hmm. Why are we dwelling on the past? But, you know, um, I mean, my wife is Russian and, you know, there's something that they do every year, which, you know, they do this victory parade mm-hmm. and where they, uh, where the Russians walk down um, their main roads with pictures of the ones people that lost, they lost in World War mm-hmm. Two. They lost like 12 million people yeah. or something like that, right? And... You kind of see, you know, at the start, I used to go, why are they doing this? I mean, this has happened. It's, a-. but now I look back and go, geez, it's good they still remember that. They don't forget that. And, and I guess it, it just shows some cultures still hold on to the past. And I think it's important to hold on to the past because sometimes you need to understand, you know, you need to know the past so those things don't happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately in this era, uh, people are too quick to, um, to kind of say, well, it happened in the past. It was a, it was a different time. You know, it you know, that's not how I feel about it now, but you know, what can we do about it? But I think you have to know those things. And and you know, as much as I say, well, Americans should know enough about their black history and things like that. I don't think I know everything about Australian Aboriginal history as well. You know, I know a little bit about it, um, but there's plenty of atrocities with, you know, the stolen generation and, um, and you know, uh, Aboriginals being uh, locked up and things like that, which I also don't know enough, enough about. And I think that's uh, an important case. Mm-hmm. Um, think- if we drown, bring that back to our industry. Mm-hmm. Is this something that you feel also is a systemic into hospitality? Is it in all works in all walks of life? I, I unfortunately think
1: it is in all walks of life. I think that there are some sectors that are better, but then again, it's it's one of those and it's hard for me to really speak about all you know a lot of it because one most of my experiences in fine dining, so I, I can't really speak about the more casual sector as much that type of thing. And then the other is that also again I am a white male. There could have been things happening, you know, at Eleven Madison Park that you know I didn't see or I didn't experience. But but at the same time, to to speak about that, there was only you know there was my friend Carl. There was one black guy in the kitchen that wasn't a dishwasher. You know what I mean? Yeah. That type of thing. It was it was, it was pretty. You know, it was a, a pretty white place, you know, and, and even thinking about like, I've, I've worked in probably around or been involved with around like 23, 24 restaurants in my career. And there are not a lot of black people in, in the kitchen, honestly, like of, of kitchens that I've worked in, which is mostly fine dining. So, so it is one of those things that it is, it, it is an issue that it is not more inclusive. So
0: when you come back to – when you say that line about people kind of fall onto the, well, it didn't happen to me, mm-hmm. it didn't affect me. I, I, now, I'll give you my own experience on that because I think – I also think like that, mm-hmm. I but I also think that's why I'm also probably part of the problem there because um, as a Sri Lankan, I never had or did I ever feel ever a point of discrimination, mm-hmm. I'll be honest. I – I worked in some hard kitchens just like everyone else, right? You know, old school kitchens where things were being thrown at you and you were being abused. But I didn't feel I got abused any more than the next guy mm-hmm. um, or any less than the next guy. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't feel anything like that. I didn't feel anyone was tough on me. Um, I did, and I kind of had this mentality, you know, all kitchens are tough and this is how you have to do it to kind of make it. Mm-hmm. Um and so when I hear this line, uh, you know, I didn't get this opportunity, I kind of go, well, I never felt that. So I just stay oblivious to it because I kind of go, well, it, I, I nearly have this mentality because it never happened to me. It, did, it couldn't be happening. But I think that's why, again, I might be part of that problem in seeing things like that because just because it didn't happen to me doesn't mean it doesn't happen doesn't to it's not happening exactly yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. I was just maybe very lucky mm-hmm. or I just worked with the right people or you know I was again I just put it down to luck because there are people that don't get those opportunities um, purely based on color or gender or, you know, background or, uh, sexuality, whatever. Yeah.
1: And that's the thing is that racism doesn't necessarily mean overt racism. You know, it's not like, you know, people are screaming the N word and, you know, throwing stuff, you know, like that type of thing. I mean, it can be, I mean, and and it really is a very real thing. If you do the research wage gap, I mean, and, and if you're really talking about, you know, discrimination, it's, it's across the board in our industry from, you know, you know, race as well as just, uh, you know, male, female, that type of thing. Like, I, I mean, acro- across the board, the statistics are that there is a huge wage gap and then also just opportunity, you know, white males are there. I mean, they lead 44% of kitchens in America, like that type of thing. And, and that's, you know, I mean, we are not the majority of, yep. of, of people, but we are the majority holding the positions, that type of thing. So, so there really is a huge disparity. And so there there is definitely you know discrimination within our industry and and, and they really actually say that it is one of the largest um, wage gaps of any industry in America is in the restaurant industry. yeah
0: okay. I mean, I can imagine not just in kitchens, I'm sure in service mm-hmm. that probably kicks over as well because I'll be honest, I can't remember seeing that many. Uh, black sommeliers or black restaurant managers or it's really
1: even worse in america because everything is based off of a tip system so most most other places in the world everything is you know service included that type of thing you know so so you get paid a wage it is not that way in america so if you have a really crappy racist customer and you're a black server and you do a great job you're not going to make as much money not because of your merits you know what I mean? Like you're not going to make money because it is somebody's opinion of you of how you get tipped. So, you know, you're even at more of a disadvantage in in the, the front of house arena because, you know, it, it's going off of, of, of looks, off of assumptions, that type of thing. Whereas in the kitchen, you know, at least the, the restaurant is the one that controls your wage and hopefully they're doing a good job at that, you know. So, and then if you think about psalms, um, I don't know if you've heard recently, you know, the movie Psalm that, that made Made Somalia is famous, you know, the whole one, it goes through the whole saga of going through and getting your, um, your master song. Yes. Yeah. So Brian McClintock, one of the stars of that, he just yes. recently announced that he is resigning from the quartermaster Psalms and that he is no longer going to be a part of the association because they, they refuse to be vocal about the black lives matter issue and that they, you know, he, he's brought it up with them and said, do you support this? And they, as a whole, as a unified body, do not support it, and so he was like, "I, you know, I need to walk my walk and not just talk the talk." So he is resigning from it, and it, and it really is one of those things that, in especially, I feel like the wine world, there is even less diversity. It is, it, it's,
0: yeah, pretty whitewashed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, is there black, indigenous, and people of color applying for these jobs though? Or have they just said, "Well, this is we've never got a chance in this"? You know, it, I, I mean, I'm not expecting you to it's, know exactly what yeah, uh, from your own experience.
1: Yeah, like I mean, I mean, it's one of those that of restaurants that I've owned. And, and so, okay, the other thing to also state is that um, the Latino population is heavily, heavily represented in America in kitchens. So yep. it's, it's, it's honestly more discriminatory towards, you know, African-Americans than it is Latinos, because I, I don't know that, I mean, if you go to any kitchen in New York, it's, I'd say 50% Latino, honestly, maybe even more okay. like it's, you know, yep. that type of thing. But in terms of African-Americans in these positions, not a lot of them. And I, I don't know if it's that they're not applying or not, because I'm not part of that process. I don't, I don't honestly know. So
0: yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But then again, you're not going to apply for somewhere you're not welcome. And, and that's
1: the other thing is, is that there's, you know, I, I think Grant Ackett of Alinea, he, he was talking about, he was looking around one day and he was like, wait, I have one black eye in my kitchen. And he walked up to him and he was like, why, like, why are you the only black eye in this kitchen? And he said that uh, it was one of those things that his mother raised him to not want to serve white people. Like that type of thing. Like that was a form okay, yeah. Of, yeah, yeah. Of, of kind of like I, I will not be your servant. Like that type of thing. So yeah, yeah. So it was one of those things that it, it, he said for him it was very eye opening because he sees it as you know a very different experience of what service is and what hospitality is and stuff like that. But but I I, I don't know if there's a and and I don't know I don't I don't want to speak about something that I I don't really know about that type of thing. So yeah. I, I don't know if we, yeah, yeah. you know I I, I don't know.
0: I mean, I I think one of the other problems is that even if you go to the Food Network, Mm -hmm. right, let's go back to the Food Network, if you look at the black chefs that are on there, they all kind of all fall under that whole barbecue, you know, Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, Jamaican background. Um, There is that guy, is it Magnus? Magnus? Samuelson or something. Um, I can't think of his name. Oh, um, no, Marcus think- Samuelson. Yeah.
1: Oh no. Yes, yeah, he- he's incredible. No, he's yeah. So, so he actually is. Um, is he American? Was he? What it is is he's of Ethiopian descent, but then he was raised in Sweden, and so he was okay. the head chef yeah. of Aquavit in New York, which you know, they won James Beard awards and he got Michelin stars and stuff like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, one day. And he said it was actually after nine eleven. I was actually just uh, watching something about him recently. Cause I've, I've liked him for a really long time. He said yeah. after nine eleven that it really affected him, that he was like, you know, like why, you know, it made, it made him like, kind of like reevaluate everything. And he was like, like, why am I just kind of, you know, cooking food that, you know, it doesn't really speak to my soul at the same time for people that I don't really relate to, you know, that, yeah. They possibly don't yeah. even appreciate this, and you know that that whole thing. So he opened up Red Rooster in Harlem, and it's you yeah. know doing food that is more of like, you know, from you know the African diaspora, like that type of thing yeah. that yeah. Yeah. You know, he yeah. kind of feels a bit more passionately about. And-
0: yeah, I mean, and I think that's the problem because, the, and okay, apart from him, anytime you do see black chefs on TV, they automatically fall into that barbecue, you know, grilling, um, you know, like real. Caribbean-style cooking and not, not really, you know, you don't see black chefs showing how to make pastas and Italian dishes or pizzas or French food or Asian food. Mm-hmm. It, it automatically kind of, um, it nearly puts them in a subcategory and where you can watch, you know, an Asian chef go to Scotland and show how to grill lamb chops and, you know, do things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of think, you know, so yeah, it's it's not the most, you know, it's not the most inviting industry or saying, you know, they, they kind of say, well, if you're a black chef, you have to kind of be, you fall under fall this. Fall in this, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. If you're a Latino chef, you need to be showing how to make tacos and, you know, you, you need to kind of automatically fall into that category and not, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want to see Latino chefs cooking French food because yeah. it's not.
1: But then you talk about the cultural, appro- the cultural appropriation of other cuisines with white people and there's never – Really, which I honestly I, I I don't really have an issue with you know a white guy cooking Vietnamese food if that's something that if no, he, if he lived in no, Vietnam no. and he's super passionate about it and, yeah. you know, yeah, 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 you know yeah, but yeah. but there is yeah. there is that conversation as well about you know cultural appropriation and you know that yeah
0: yeah yeah so, yeah 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 I mean look uh, I mean let's let's not forget in Thailand um, who's a guy that does uh, that famous David Thompson the Australian. David Thompson. I mean, he's one of the number one Thai cooking chefs. Yeah. He's Australian mm-hmm. and he's he's white Australian. So, you know, um, you do have a situation like that, but then also you don't want to necessarily watch, you know, Martha Stewart cooking a Thai green curry and showing people yeah. that. To- yeah, there's that as well. Or Guy Fieri yeah. showing people how to make a Thai green curry yeah. in the middle of Texas, you know. Yeah. Ah uh, no, like cow's milk or something. I, I think
1: it's one of those things that you have to do a cuisine justice. You have to know about it. You have to know it through and through, and you have to know you know the foundation and the base. And and, and then if you want to do riffs and stuff like that, then you can do. It. I mean, but I think that's with anything. That's you know not just with you know doing you know another culture's food, but but I, I think it's one of those that you really have to you, you should respect it. You know.
0: But then in saying that, and I'll play devil's advocate yeah, here because a part of me believe this i do believe if guy fieri does a green curry and his base has an attempt at making this let's call it the guy fieri version of a green <laughs> curry so <laughs> like, i can't imagine like
1: anyway like curry donkey food. sauce and like you know, <laughs> exactly, like right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right, exactly <laughs> right
0: at least now those people are a little bit more educated on Thai cuisine, yeah, you know, yeah, it probably isn't going to be anywhere near mm-hmm. what it's supposed to be, yeah. Um, but at least they're now a little bit educated on what you know. If he calls it Thai green donkey sauce, right? Yeah. you know, at least these people might like. Hey, I like these, you know, the corianders and yeah. and who knows? He's probably putting ketchup in there as well. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Possibly, <laughs> right. yeah. But uh, at least they're kind of starting to start to. See different ingredients that they don't generally see every day. So, um, but talking about uh, chefs, non-inclusive. I, I sent you guys an article, and this is my other favorite group of people what I like to always pick on, which is the Michelin
1: group. Oh, Michelin! There's there's such a love hate thing with Michelin, honestly. Isn't there? Yeah.
0: Isn't there? I mean, I found that article that says just six percent of head chefs across the hundred and sixty. Five top sh- top restaurants are from Black or South Asian background. Yeah, the Michelin style.
1: I mean, but Michelin is skewed for many reasons. They also favor mostly just French-based restaurants as well, which you know makes it even harder because that's not always what you know Latin Americans or
0: Asians or you know African Americans. So or, you know anybody or anybody you, the James Beard award is for all types of cuisine or do you find that also so
1: james know? beard award is basically like the the academy awards or like the emmys of the food food service industry in america and um they did not have a single black winner for the 16 years until oh really two, two okay. Yeah. Ago, okay until two years ago and and then they had like six or eight of them in the past two years because i think that they wanted to be on the right side of history and they realized like Oh crap! Like we're we're just as bad and discriminatory as everybody else, and so we should, you know, clean things up a bit and not be so, you know. Okay. Yeah. So 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 it is it is starting to shift, but there. I mean, there's so much good food in America by non-white chefs, and it's 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 really it's pretty disturbing how long it took for people to just include anybody that wasn't white. You know, like it's Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, but this is nearly across the board in our industry. You got, you know, okay, let's put James Beard until two years ago. You've got the Michelin stars, Baku's door, another, you know, grand. I think Baku's door only recently gave, uh, the, they had their first female winner. Um, really? I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah, there was. And I only, and I'll be honest, the only reason I knew, and I did not know until last week, and again, I, I should probably check it out. I went for dinner on Wednesday to a friend's house, uh, a chef that runs a restaurant called Alta, which I always go to. Mm-hmm. And my daughter was playing around and she, and he goes, listen, don't worry. She can play with anything. And she pulled out this book and he goes, accept that book. And he goes, that's been signed by the first Baku store, first female Baku store winner. And that's when I kind of learned, oh, okay. So there was a female Bacuse door winner, oh, wow. but that only happened recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, Michelin, you know, kind of ways always to that is that french uh mm-hmm. um
1: and then there's the about the, there the the
0: women there's also that that you can group
1: in there with all that that is yep, yep who yep, have yep, their yep. own category for best female chef which yep i, I you know in, well, okay in so hard, what's wrong with that because i think that a chef is a chef and that why is a woman in a different category why like okay. is, is her food different is she you know i re- i really think that it's one of those things that it's it it doesn't. Why does it have to be a separate category?
0: Like why why is it not just delicious food? Why if if that was the case, and this this is where I'm always a little bit because I, I kind of sit on the fence on this mm-hmm. one. I see it from both sides, actually. all right? a part of me says exactly what you said. Why does it have to have a women's only category? Right? Mm-hmm. Why can't it be a, a chef is a chef, you know? But then I also worry, will that mean, so if you kind of, but would then she have the same opportunities to go up against if she was like in an open category?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you talk to, I mean, I've, I've listened to, to, you know, I've, I've met Dominique Crenn. I've, I've talked to Emma Um, If, if you talk to these winners of this thing, they find it offensive. They, they consider themselves chefs, not women chefs. They're chefs. They work just as hard. They They've worked the same amount of years that, you know, so why like they, they want to be, you know, recognized as what they are, which is a chef. Like they find it completely offensive as well. And it's it's one of those things that they it's and I wanna say the food speaks for itself, but it doesn't because that's just a complete boys club. So they don't have a fair shake.
0: Yeah, that's, a
1: I, lot, that's what I want don't have a fair shake because it's so much PR involved and it's so much knowing people and glad handing. Like if you look at I mean, I'm not here to like poo-poo on other chefs and stuff like that, but if you look no, no. at, if you look at um, Kazame, Kazame is Enrique Oliveira, who has Puyol in, in Mexico. It's his other restaurant in New York. So Puyol has is, is always been known as like one of the tops. I've eaten at Kazame. It's ranked number 23 in the world right now. I'm sorry. It, it is not 23 in the world, but he's part of that boys' club. And so they're like, oh, he has this other restaurant. Let's, you know, throw it on there. But then on top of that, his chef is female and she won best female chef in the world. And so I think that that's a political thing to try and be like, look, we're being inclusive. We, we did this, see? Like that type of thing. Because just on merit alone, I don't, I don't think that a lot of the restaurants that are top Fifty or whatever. I, I think that a lot of it is politics, is, is basically what it comes.
0: Oh, to, yeah, is, 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 is what,
1: what I'm all trying to say is. It,
0: it comes no, no, no. To, I 100 yeah. percent agree with you. On that. It's 100. Mm-hmm. percent But do you think then that way? I don't know. I, I kind of think does that then at least break that boys' club a little bit by saying, okay, you know, it, it, I don't know. No, I don't no, think I there's think, any way. It's the consolation prize.
1: I, I don't. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I think it's it's one of those. Oh, here's here's this. Even though you know, we'll, we're not going to accept you as an equal, yeah. you know, like that type of thing. Like it's, yeah. I, I don't, I don't think, but it's also one of those that, so they started doing it at uh, world's 50 best. They started doing the greats or whatever it is, you know, like, so that basically if you become number one, you're out of the list. You're, you're just part of this list of greats now that you, you can never be, you know, lower than number one. You're just part of this thing. And the reason was, is the fragile ego of chefs is that people were getting mad that certain chefs were dominating it. So they're like, you need to put them in a different category so I can be number one, because it's been dominated by, I mean, for the first, I don't know what it was, like fifteen years, it was like, like three chefs or four. It was like Thomas Keller, Heston Blumenthal, and then it was Ron Adria for like, you know, seven years or whatever it was, and then Rene Redzepi for the longest time, and then the Roca brothers, and finally Mirazor got it in Menton, you know, uh, Colorado. Yeah. because oh, and Eleven Madison Park got there too, yeah. But but it's one of those that you know, like, because. It, it's a boys club, you know, and, and they're in like, the chefs are getting angry because they're not being picked. And so now they want to more people. Yeah, have yeah. The spoils.
0: I, I always so, wonder how, like, you know, um, how does that young guy, you know, that's, it, it is nearly the Willy Wonka's golden lottery ticket. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it nearly is <laughs> like, because how is that young guy who's in the middle of nowhere uh, going to get his name out and, and get into that club because or get to that those levels because it is very much locked down by the same people. And, and okay, some parts of me agree, okay, people like Ferran Andrea, they did mm-hmm. probably um, – they were the pioneers, but then – you know, you can't be pioneering unless you're pioneering every year. And okay. For probably the first three years, that guy was mm. very yeah. much pioneering. I
1: mean, I'd say of everybody, he, he created techniques that are, exactly. are, are now, you know, it, it's like, it's like, so the, the new resurgence is that now it's going back to the old more or less. You know, yeah. now, now it's researching the old and making it new. He was making the new, new, like he
0: exactly. He was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was yeah. Yeah.
1: Things like, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. And then, and then the same can be said about uh, Heston where he, you know, he does some crazy stuff that has a lot, it's very science-based. It's very, you know, he, he was also doing things that, you know, nobody else was doing that type of thing. Whereas, you know, you look at, you know, Noma and Rene Redzepi and he's looking to the past. He's looking at, you know, all of his stuff is fermentation and garums and things that, you know, the Romans were doing thousands of years ago, but he's making yep. that new again.
0: Yep. Um, but yeah, I agree. They shouldn't be. I think it nearly needs to be a. You know, you get it once, and then maybe you're off the list for the next three years. Yeah. Well, now, you know, now it's
1: yeah. Now well, it's it's what? you're 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 off the list. Yeah, you're, like, a great, yeah, you're, you're a great. You're one of the greats. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, but but it, it really, I, I definitely do think that it's. And I know I wish Sebastian was here. He has a uh, some fun story. Yeah, I sense, know. I'm you with know? yeah.
0: this. I mean, look, yeah. I, I think uh, because what we need to do is. Uh, have a proper Joe Rogan like you, our mate, uh, Eddie Bravo, also known as Chandler, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, because I know this is a topic that it, 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 it could – I mean, like I say, I feel both ways about it. Part of me believes that, yes, you should uh, – everyone needs to go in the one kettle of – you know in the one pool and everyone goes, okay, you, you're the best, you're the best and, and it works like that. But another pe- part of me worries that if you don't, Do that, then people get missed out. So then, yes, you're right. If you do have the best black chef, if you have the best female chef, if you have the best Asian chef, right, Mm -hmm. then you're right. Mm -hmm. It is a consolation prize, and and it doesn't matter how good it is. Um, It nearly becomes. And you know what I always refer back to Um, when Serena Williams they made that comment. Oh, Serena Williams is number one in the world, but she would be number. 200 in the men's right, mm-hmm. which is just a nonsicle comment, right? Yeah, because <laughs> like it just takes away, you just took someone who's the best yeah. in their field, and, and like, right? The most dominant athlete the of, sport sport. of any <laughs> sport of any era, <laughs> ever.
1: Right. and then reduced her down to like, nah, you know, yeah, whatever. yeah. yeah you're, I mean, you're good, but you know,
0: yeah, but you know, if you're in our club, then you'd be 200. And I kind of go, like, I couldn't believe, like, and it was like, a, nearly like a throwaway comment, but when I heard that, I was like, Man, that's a terrible comment. Like, yeah, it just there's really so many
1: ridiculous. of those, though. Honestly, where they, they're just
0: they just knock people I think McEnroe made that comment too. I wouldn't be surprised know. about that. Yeah, and, and I just kind of go, "Geez, it really," and and you can't just go with, "Oh, but I'm just stating the facts." Yeah, but you, she's also not a male, like you, can't like, you, know, and, and, you can't put her in. Yeah. Category, and, you know? and
1: I do feel like it's one of those things that there is a reason there are like men's competitions and women's competitions when it comes to physical things that that's just physiology that, yeah. but you know, something like cooking, there is nothing that is no, making a, a limiting factor in cooking. There is nothing yeah. at all, you know, from a male absolutely, a male
0: zero. absolutely zero. And, and I must say like, it's something um, I always made it a bit of a mission of mine, um, that I always trying to find female chefs because I always Absolutely. thought there was less female chefs in our industry, and unfortunately, if it—I mean, I hate to say it—but it's a much harder path for a female chef through kitchens, It only is because, because of, of the males. Exactly, exactly. It's, like it's, it's because it's
1: not—it's not because of the physical demands of the job. No, it's because no, of the because, males.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the males literally make it a, you know, it, the, it's just a, you know, they make it a very toxic environment, which well, is very male but that's friendly. The thing,
1: though is they do if the chef allows it because,
0: exactly. yep, because yep.
1: it's one of those things that I love hiring female chefs because honestly, like if you have an all male kitchen, there is just too much testosterone, too much like dick swinging, too much. And as soon as you put a female chef in there, Hopefully, if you know, depending on you know the people that you have, it, it calms the group down a bit. You know what I mean? Like it, yeah, it, yeah. it levels them out because they don't want to look like a dickhead in front of, you know, a woman, that type of thing. So but it's also one of those that if you look at places like Manresa, so David Kinch, Michelin Three-star restaurant in Los Gatos, California, at one okay. point his entire kitchen was female. His entire kitchen of the Michelin three-star and like he's he's in like he's he's gone back to you know a bit more you know mixed settings, but he said it was the most pleasant work environment I've ever had in my entire life. It was like, it's, you know, it's filled with respect and it's not just macho testosterone all over the place. You know, it's just like everybody being professional, putting their head down, doing their job and being pleasant and getting on with it. And yeah. it's like, that's, that's He's amazing. a pretty like, chill like, out dude. Uh, <laughs> but, you know? Yeah. He really is. Yeah. He's, yeah, yeah he's amazing. And I mean, <laughs> the whole mission thing with him it's did you, did you hear about what happened with him for the longest time he was at two mission stars for for years and years and then one year they were like you got your third mission or they announced that he got his third mission star and everybody Thomas Keller everybody's like congratulating yes like you finally did it and then mission came out and they're like oh, I'm sorry yeah. that was a misprint you actually still have two missions yeah 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 <laughs> but then the next year he got his third but Yeah, but it was like, oh, you're killing us here. Because I think of of all the places in the States, his is one of the best restaurants, honestly. The stuff that he's doing is incredible, yeah. And I actually – I spoke to him one time um, at – it was at a restaurant that I was working at. um, And I was like, so, you know, can I stage at your restaurant? And he said that there is – it's a minimum six-month stage. And there was a really? nine-month waiting list for a six-month stage. Because,
0: I, I, but I mean, yes, even when I've like, seen him on TV, yeah, I was like, "Yeah, every- he comes across like the kind of guy you'd want to work for." Not because he, like, I mean, forget the yeah. talent side of things. You just kind of go, "That would be such a nice environment to work in." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I couldn't yeah, probably absolutely. say the same about when it was firing on, on all cannons, right? You kind of go. You, you can imagine that would have been such a tense, such a tense environment, and 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 it, it's to be expected. Mm-hmm. But you kind of go.
1: You'd it, it, go in there yeah.
0: going, "I'm going to learn a lot," but you know what? This is not going to be, you know, it's it's going to be like, you know, a exercise. You're going to be coming out of this yeah. exhausted, no, I, I've had where work you know, there mentally and, and-, and physically. Where with David Kinch, yeah. I kind of go. Physically, yes, because of purely the workload, but mentally, you'd be very content being in that kitchen. If that looks like a happy place.
1: Well, I, I think the big thing, and, and if you talk to anybody who's ever worked, actually, like worked at Noma, they say it is the most toxic place you could ever work. They've turned it into this like very militant, like you know, like like really cutthroat kind of place where like there are people that mess up people's mise en place because they're trying to get ahead. Like it really is, it is not the kind of place that you want to work. And even when I was working at 11 Madison park, it was, it was beautiful. It was, it was the most perfect crew you could ever have. We were on this mission to become the best. And, you know, I came on when we were, you know, three stars, New York times, and then we got our four star New York times. And then we got our first mission star and then we got another mission star and you know, like, like that type of thing. So it was like the group that, you know, we were in this together. And then later I talked to, you know, my friends that were still there and they were like, it, it's changed. Now it's all just culinary mercenaries that, you know, that, that they kind of plot against each other and try and get ahead and get the favor of the chef yeah. and, you know, things like that. And like, so it's, it's like the whole high stakes cooking thing. It can either be really amazing. Unfortunately, or that's our just absolutely
0: like toxic. It, it, I mean, we've all been through it, but yeah. you, you kind of hope that that kind of stuff, has, you know, people have matured on from that, but unfortunately, um, I I can't imagine it to
1: I feel like it is getting better though. I I feel like it's one of those things. And yeah, at least in America, because I think that people are wising up to the fact that you don't really have to put up with this abuse anymore, that there are enough places that, and, and it is, it is one of those things that you do put up with things to a certain extent. And you're like, you know, yeah, I have to do this because I know that in the end, this is going to make me better. Um, but but I feel like the whole like throwing pots and pans and stuff like that, that doesn't happen as much no, these days. No. Like that no, nobody no. wants to work for that kind of place yeah, and yeah. you don't have to, you know? So I mean, yeah. um, that's, that's, that's and, and that's where it guard, comes yeah. back to
0: like, if you are a person of color or indigenous or something like that, that kind of environment, it it's not inviting and it's not, Um, Mm -hmm. somewhere you'd want to be at all, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's easily, I wouldn't say it's easily, but, you know, you could be, that's, it it nearly becomes a bit of a breeding ground for, uh, discrimination and, you know, prejudice and racism because, um, you know, it, it, it it could, people have this, you know, it's a little bit of that, um, what's that word, uh, I can't think of the word right now. Um, uh, that It's not—it's like that comfortable racism where they don't believe they're being racist, right? A bit like that yeah. Amy Cooper that kind of believes she's not racist, but, you know, she can easily fall back on oh, man,
1: The amount of people these days that are exactly. outing themselves exactly. and then saying, oh, no, but I'm not racist. And it's like, yeah, oh, yeah. you're clearly yeah, yeah. a racist. You just don't realize what you're doing. And some of them yeah. absolutely do realize what they're doing is racist, yeah. but they just don't get fired, you know, yeah. because yeah.
0: they're just trash. I mean, look, but, yeah. it's, a, it's a very tough yeah. topic. No, I mean- and I think it's a topic that's very relevant nowadays. And people just don't really um, – there's a lot of people that don't understand about it. And I think uh, you know, yourself coming on and explaining it – and i tell you what, I mean, that whole black history and you know, why a lot of this is coming out – I think that's educational, not only for me, but everyone. Yeah. It's,
1: it's one of those that more people need to learn about this stuff, honestly. And it, it's one of those that it, it needs. To, so I, I just had this conversation recently about somebody because they were trying to argue their ignorance and they tried to compare it to Germany. And they were like, Oh, are, is there an uprising of Jews going against the, the Germans? And it's like, Like, do you know what Germany did to try and right the wrongs of the Holocaust? Like it's in like they've paid to date over the past sixty years, they've paid eighty nine million dollars I'm sorry, eighty-nine billion dollars with a B in reparations. They've torn down every single bit of Nazi anything. It's illegal to fly the flag. It's I mean, they've they've done everything to try and say it, they educate their youth about it. I mean, it's in their textbooks. They do everything they can to ensure that not only does everybody know about it, but that it does not happen again, that this is not perpetuated. The States you know, done nothing say, like that. You yeah, can fly a Confederate yeah. flag. The Confederacy lasted for like five years and, Oh, it's my heritage. It's like, no, it's not at all. Like you're a racist. Like, I'm sorry. There's no argument. There's nothing you can say that you are a racist. You fly the Confederate flag like that. That is it. it you know, And most people don't even realize what the Confederate flag is, you know, like that type of thing. But, you know, know, people get married on plantations, you know, nobody's getting married in Auschwitz. You know, it's one of those that, you know, America has done zero steps to right their wrongs. And, you know, Hitler's reign was from 1933 to 1945. That's 12 years. I'm not diminishing, you know, the effect of everything that happened, but it was 12 years. Slavery happened for 320 years, and then 80 years after that was Jim Crow, and like, Jim Crow lasted longer after after World War II by nine years. You know, so it's one of those things that you know, like don't don't try and say, oh well, you know, Germany. It's like no, they've they've done a much better job. It's it's,
0: uh, the Confederate flag thing. I'm always lost on that. I I can't. You know, it, it just really shows a lot of you know how. Where maturity sits on a lot of people, where they keep on putting this all, but you know, it's not, it's not racist. It's my background, it's my heritage, my grandparents. um, I saw a clip of this guy saying, my 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 grand, this white guy, he's like, you know, but my grandparents were poor too, you know. <laughs> well, that's why he wants to fly the Confederate flag. They He goes, my grandparents were so poor they couldn't own slaves. <laughs> he, he's saying this to a black guy. I'm sitting there going, what the hell? Like, you know, it's just, oh man, you know. People terrible, only yeah. listen to what they want to listen. Unfortunately, yeah, nah, that's the problem. That's,
1: yeah, and unfortunately, it really is one of those things that it's generational too. That you know, it's it's racist teaching other racists to be racist. You know, it's their children passing on their values, and then it, but but it's one of those that there's no there's no checks and balances. There's that nobody is saying that you can't teach these things. Nobody is saying that it's. It's wrong to be racist. In the South, I mean – so I don't know if you know this. The ratification of the 13th Amendment, it it needs to be ratified by the majority of the states, not all of them. It didn't get ratified by Delaware until 1901. It didn't get ratified by – let me see. I I actually have this written down because this blew my mind. Um, Let's see. It was Kentucky ratified it in – 1976 ratified the the abolition of slavery. In 19... Mississippi. Guess when it. it was abolished or guess when it was ratified? 2013. 2013. There's there's no way you would have guessed that. 2013. It was finally ratified by Mississippi. Like th- like when they talk about like yeah. southern racism, like yeah. it is a yeah, thing. Yeah. It is definitely.
0: Um, but a it starts thing. at school. No. That's the thing. It Starts at school. At...
1: Yeah, absolutely. But. If you look at American textbooks, they don't even not all of them say that the Civil yes. War was started over yeah, yeah. slavery. They say it's over states' rights, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is yeah. just
0: and And, and unfortunately, people you know? manipulate history the way they want it to manipulate, and, and it just becomes you know, I remember my old history ta- teacher saying history means his story, um, like his story, and you know, if somebody else tells his different story, then mm-hmm. you know, that's what people um, will believe, and um, I mean, when I read about these statue stories and how a lot of these statues only came up in the 70s, um, you, you, yeah, you kind of go, yeah, it, it's it insane that people are fighting yeah. about this. I could nearly understand if they came up, like, in the early 90s and uh, 1900s when, you know, when these – when the, the battlefield yeah, – well, I, yeah. I would say
1: if they happened yeah. before the Civil War, then that's actually history. But no, this this all happened as a reminder to black people that, like, yeah, yes, exactly. you're free, but, like, you're I'm a second-class citizen. Like, that's what they
0: Josh, about, that's all we have time for. Thank you. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely have you back because yeah, we, need, we need to get Sebastian on this call and we'll yeah, get me, uh, Chandler as well just to have a good yak about the Michelin. Because I think that Michelin topic we need to come back to. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah we really yeah, do I because think, I there think are a lot of actually, thoughts on that. I honestly. have another yeah. friend
0: who slept in last time, actually, right? Uh, Scottish guy, so we might need to subtitle him somehow, right? Because he's not even understand. But he's also got some very <laughs> radical views on this as well, and and it's interesting because it is the mission. Michel- Unfortunately, we just it, it, it's a bit like the Academy Awards. It, it, it's like the award that you want to get, but realistically, it's so flawed, right? And it's like. Like the like the Absolutely. like the Academy Awards, yep. you no, know, it, Academy Awards always only celebrated those big mm-hmm. dramas and things like that. It never gave too much to these other things, um, and it has to change. And I think the Michelin is exactly the same process. You know, um, it's it hasn't kept with the time, unfortunately. Yeah,
1: and yeah, 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 yeah. I guess that's another episode because there's so much more to say about all that. Thank yeah. you for that, Josh. That,
0: that really is a thing. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Very good. I appreciate it. This is my first podcast. is a lot of fun. See you all
0: next Uh, time.